history lecture number 26, Rabbi Blyweiss. And we're doing a really interesting section today on Omri, but not really Omri, we, we talked about Omri yesterday. His son Ahab, his wife, Izevel, the queen, and uh, their prophet, Eliyahu. I just, this does sound like a setup for some kind of a... Uh, was that? Yeah, no, I wasn't going to say it. Okay, the... Um, we said yesterday the significance of this period is that um, previously the Avodazara was of the, you know, you shouldn't do that, and if you do that, it's really Avodazara. But now they're moving into full fledged, activated, like the old pagan world does, Avodazara. Um, in fact, the Pasuk says explicitly no one, this is how unprecedented Ahab is, no one like Ahav sold himself to do evil in Hashem's eyes, and then it adds significantly, under his wife Izevel's persuasion. And what the Pasuk emphasizes is that Ahav was not a free agent. He was influenced by Izevel, which is my first major point on the day. This is the first time we have a Vodazara, and one of the few isolated instances of Vodazara. I'm quoting, I'm referring to a, a great historian by the name of Victor Miller when I say this, and he says, even the Avodah that infiltrates the Jewish ranks comes by, by a foreign implant. It was, she smuggled it in, as it were. We already saw this with Shlomo's wives, and now, but even they were not doing full-fledged grade A Avodah She was the catalyst. She was one who brought it in. Um, Jews never initiated. S- secondly, only a minority of the Jews were involved in the worship. Does anybody know the name of the brand of Avodah Zarah that was all the rage in their days? Baal. Baal was the brand of Avodah Zarah. We've seen it before, but never, never to this degree. Um, and the Pasuk says explicitly later on, when Ye- it's a great saying, I don't want to give away the, the shot, but Yehu later on is able to round up all of the Baal worshippers in the entire northern kingdom, and they were so few, they could... They, all of them together filled a, a pagan temple of worship, which is a finite number. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many you get into one of those ancient temples—a thousand, three thousand, maybe—but it was a very, it was a relatively finite number in the larger scheme of Kaliyos. So we're not talking about a widespread, rampant phenomenon. We're talking about a small cancer that's starting to grow. But, but Rahavam's wife, right? Uh, Shlomo's son. Rahavam's wife, Ma'acha, yeah. How is that not great? A Wasn't she? Uh, you said that she was a prostitute to. Uh, she was a Kadesha. It's a good question. I wonder. Or, I wonder really what. Intense. It does seem like it. Rav Miller says, based on Chazal, though, that there, even that might have been a milder form. She was. She was using the accoutrements of Odazar, but it really she didn't really intend to worship pagans like this. Not not to this uh, full full degree. And still. And still, Ahav never abandoned Hashem. And I didn't just contradict myself. The, you know, sometimes, I mean, I don't know about you, a lot of people are really complicated and sometimes full of contradictions. Ahav is probably the greatest example of that. He was, in the, in the Gemara and Sanhedrin's phrasing, Ahav shakul haya. He was equally good and equally bad in equal portions um, and extreme in both ways. Um, when Eliyahu, for example, later on is going to give him a rebuke, he, he, he takes it seriously. You know, a real pagan would dismiss it and not care, but not Ahav. Ahav, Ahav actually is, is upset visibly. 
He starts wearing sackcloth, which is one of the things they used to do when they made tshuva. He um, has uncomfortable kind of clothes, and he's the king, and he doesn't have to do that. He started fasting. Um, Ahav names his sons after HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not after the pagan guys, not after Baal. And there are names that people gave for the Baal worship, and Ahav didn't do that. He named his sons Ahaziah, right, Hashem, a grasp, grabbing on, as it were, to Hashem. Um, Yehoram, all variations on Hashem's names. Um, we know that Gemara and Chulim tells us that he kept a, a kosher kitchen. And in many ways he was from. Um, and that's not a contradiction because a person could have the Avodah and also, we've seen this too, somehow maintain a from lifestyle and believe in a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And in these spiritually lofty times, the way I, 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 this is the best description I, I can give you. In times that are so spiritually potent and loaded, people are full of incredible energy and sometimes they don't know what to do with that energy. It's this wild kind of electric energy. And so they serve Hashem, but somehow that's not enough. So they channel it in the wrong direction too, and they serve a Vodazara. That's my image. That's, I think that's, that's the way I would describe this, this. And that's why you can have these extremes that seem to contradict each other, but somehow don't. Daniel? How can you, anybody, how can they believe, for example, Right. It, it boggles the mind. You're asking for the, the obvious kind of How could they worship Hashem, but Hashem himself says in the Second Commandment, you can't have any of it. You can't have, have it both ways. Uh, serving God another God is the antithesis of serving Hashem. Well, wouldn't it be worse to serve both of them instead of serving just one? I mean, if you're going to pick a side, pick one. No. Uh, right. I mean, you're saying just from a level of, of intellectual honesty. How do you live with yourself? No, it's not that. It's, it's, I know. So what I what I would do is it, it, we've had a similar discussion recently where I talk about the cognitive dissonance, the emperor's new clothes phenomenon, where somehow people get into a a, a groove of life, into a certain pattern of, of behavior that it just they work it out. And we do that too, so uh, to some degree. Hopefully not this, but you know you've got certain things I imagine going on in your life that are not quite consistent with your values, and you've somehow smoothed it out and said it's okay. No? There's nothing? Your life is totally worked out? Baruch I take it back. But you know what I mean. You know how people are. We have stuff that we do that we shouldn't do, but we say, nah, it's okay, I don't need to do that. I'm alright, I'm different. No? If I do something wrong, I know I'm doing something wrong. Ah, okay, that's different. I I'm claiming that a lot of people have that, that, that denial, and I think that that's a feature of these times, Barak. But did Ahav actually go to Zara? I thought that Jezebel was in charge. Like Arguably, he, 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 he was the catalyst, the instigator, but not, not involved. Right. She I clearly mean, was everything. I, mean, I thought he, at least my understanding was that he actually believed the guy. He just was okay with her running yeah. the whole bar. Right. Like, he was right. very passive. Right. Um, to his credit, one of his greatest virtues, a great scene, at one point later in his um, reign, he gets he has a conflict with Ben Hadad over in Aram, the same one that Asa made an, uh, an ill-advised alliance with, right? So Ben Hadad, um, uh, excuse me, excuse me, the son of Hadad, it's Ben Hadad, uh, it's the son of the one that Asa Asa uh, made an alliance with. So Ben Hadad is a real troublemaker and starts making all these demands, and he, he demands that Achav fork over. He says, "Send me all your wives." which you have to realize in the ancient world, that, that's, that's flatten words. Uh, that's, 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 that's seditious to, to, to demand the king's wives. That's exactly what they did to show that they, you know, that, that they, were, they they'd made the other king submissive. Um, but Ahab complied. He sent his wives. 
he went so far as to send some of his children to the enemy king. He sent he sent um, gold and silver and many other valuables. I, allowed, not allowed. I mean, Ahaz not allowed to do all kinds of things that he did anyway. No, no, I mean, like, to keep peace in general. Yeah. It, it, some things maybe, it's other things no, but now listen to what happens. Ben Haddad now says, give me, and the Pasuk is a little bit coy about describing what it actually is, give me the um, delight of your eyes, but Chazal say, what is the delight of the eyes? Your Sefer Torah. Give me the Sefer Torah, and Ahav, to his undying credit, refuses. I will not give you the Sefer Torah. And he, and he doesn't. And the Gemara concludes that the king, because the Torah is written with the 22 letters of the Hebrew Aleph base, the king is rewarded because of that, because Hashem leaves no good deed un, un, unrewarded. And, and he says, uh, and he gives Ahab 22, pretty long years for such a wicked king, 22 years of, 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 of rulership uh, in, 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 in response to this, to this great act of, uh, of courage. Um, yeah, I would imagine that Ahab would have been actually allowed, and not 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 I'm not the Torah, but everything else to keep peace. Because yeah. with David uh, during the big drought, David was able to give all the sons of uh, of Shaul to uh, to to the Givonim. Yeah, to the, to the Givonim. Yeah, and and he knew exactly that they were going to kill him and then hang him up. It's they different. Were, yeah, they were, they was different. It's not giving symbolically the sacred Torah, no, no, which is I, I, I'm not the antithesis. Torah, but for everything else, giving the wives, giving. You're giving saying you're answering Daniel's question. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, not, yeah, not I hear what you're saying. Okay, well, but he's Achav, so we would we, we might expect this. Um, we, I, I'm making this point to show all of these points that actually in the Mishnah that I keep referring to of those who don't have a, world, a portion of the world to come. They're actually really important, estimable people who have, who have deep flaws, too. And they wouldn't be listed. That, that list is not the, not the list of the world's greatest villains. They don't even merit. They're not even worth, worth wasting our breath over. But Achav is. Achav had, 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 knew better. And he was, he was somebody, he knew Torah, he kept mitzvos. Now, Izevel, she's a different story. She doesn't mind. Um, she, she worships the Bodhisattva. But interestingly, even Izevel doesn't mind worshiping Hashem. She let the Jews, other Jews, practice. They they could serve Hashem. They could do they could do mitzvahs. Um, she doesn't understand, and this is classic sometimes to people who are coming from the outside who don't get Torah. She just doesn't understand why you can't do both. Why not serve Hashem and serve the Baal? You know, uh, somebody in my family who is not at all religious was was ailing, and. Um, I said, I'll, I'll pray for you. And so the response of this family member, my family on, on a certain side of the family is so deeply assimilated, there was so much intermarriage, that we had, on that side of the family, people I don't know, uh, people from, uh, you know, from many different religions. So this person said, oh, that's great, you're gonna pray for me in your yeshiva, and meanwhile, cousin such and such is gonna pray for me in the mosque, because that person's Muslim, and the other one's gonna pray for me in the Roman Catholic Church, wow. and the other one is Eastern Orthodox, and um, and like that, and you know, and, and, and this person's response was, and this way, I'm sure I have my bases covered. And I thought I didn't I didn't vocalize this thought, but I said I thought to myself, um, I, I had a feeling maybe that all of the above cancels each other out. Not that that's necessarily true either, but uh, but you know, people have these notions that somehow you know it's all good. You know, the more the better. I mean, luckily that's monolithic. Monolism. I mean, they're all monolithic. No, they're not all monotheistic. 
That's what the secular claim, that's the misconception, the secular claim that Christianity is monotheistic. It is most certainly not. The Trinity is not monotheistic. It's just The Rambam, no, the Rambam says it's full wrong. The Rambam, we don't postulate like the Rambam of Christianity says that it's full-fledged devotee Zara because of the Trinity. It, we don't postulate like that. We hold by the Bali Toslos who hold that it's Shitu, that it's a notch better. Right, that's true. But the Poskim agree by all sects, even the more moderate, you talk like the Presbyterians, let's say, uh, you know, even so, they're they're generally in the sphere of what's called shituf and to be avoided. So, so, so they're so not monotheistic. But this is a, this is a tangent. This is a tangent. Let's get back. Tosos is an accepted view. That's their view, not the Rambam. The Rambam holds it to be full fledged avodazara. So she doesn't see why you can't have both when there are prophets in these days who step forward in, and remember the prophets are fearless and they give harsh, one second, they say, they say harsh criticism against her and her husband. She has them murdered, but her, she's murdering them not because they're prophets of Hashem, but because of their, their insolence to the queen. And she won't tolerate it. She comes from royal blood. She comes from royal stock. She's a Phoenician princess, and she knows that's not something you do. But it's not necessarily she's coming out of hatred or antipathy, a- a- antipathy to Hashem or even the worship of Hashem. Daniel? Um, well, when she means um, like worship one and the other, does she mean worship them as the same entity or worship two? No, them? no, just like simultaneously. Yeah, dual, dual existences. That's fine. Two, I mean, like, for example, like, but there are a lot of religions in the world no, that work the same way. No, no, a person no, could be a Buddhist and also somehow no, a Jew. They, I mean, you know, like, they, they, they like, think. I'm, I'm explain, for example, like, we believe in Hashem, right? And the Muslims believe in Allah. Right. But in their eyes, they're the same thing. He chose them instead. They have a different view of... Uh, of, is, it, is, of is, is it the same entity or is it no, two Baal, different entities? Baal is no, Baal is a different entity. entity. Right. So she believes in serving two completely different entities. Right, and somehow that's compatible. Yeah, no, no, right, somehow no, that no, works. No, that's compatible. No, I'm just in the middle. I'm just in the middle because I record these. By, by all means, come in. We're, we're just giving an assessment of Ahab and Izevel. That's what we're holding at this point in history. Oh. Ahab and Izevel. And we're saying, what, right now, we're focusing on the idea that Izevel wasn't averse, even though she was one of the greatest uh, villains of history, she's not averse to people serving Hashem. You serve Hashem. But you could also worship the ball. And some other two are compatible. It's a cognitive dissonance. That's what, that's what she's about. Um, right? I said she killed off the Navim because of their insolence, not because they worshiped the Shem. And in contrast, she had a Navi who was the head of her household. His name was, uh, who knows, the author of the shortest Sefer in the entire Tanakh. One chapter long. Ovadia. Ovadia was interesting. He was fine as far as she was concerned. Interest, if, you, any, if you learn, say, for Ovadia, he has one central rallying issue, and that is Edom, Esav. It's one chapter. It's one chapter. And his whole uh, mission as a Navi, different Navim, we talked about Navim the other day, different Navim serve different functions in the world. His function is to rally against Edom, and especially he envisions the end of days, what's going to come to Esav and his progeny. And that's fine for Ezebel. She has no problems with him. He, is, he has no insolence. He's not, he's not, no, no threat of insurrection coming from Avadya. She lets him alone. She lets him be. That's fine. Um, interestingly, Avadya is described in the Pasuk as Yireh Hashem Ma'od. Uh, he, was, he was a very, very high-level person. He saved 
Uh, we'll talk about Avadji in a few in a few minutes, but he has his um, immense merits uh, that we'll, we'll talk about. He's also one of the students of Eliyahu Navi. Now, we talk, we just talked about the wickedness of Achav, who's not quite as bad as his wife Isabel. What's that? Eliyahu Navi is quite alive. We're just about to meet him in full fledged. We, I introduced him yesterday, and and hold your hold on. Today we'll we'll, we'll see a lot about Eliyahu. So stay stay with me. Stay with me. Second, second, no, no, well, hold, hold up, hold up. So even so, we just we just talked about the introduction of full-fledged idolatry, the worship of the Baal. According to Victor Miller, there's never been anything this. We've never stooped so low. And now I'm going to step back from that. I'm going to comment. Hold up. I'm going to comment. I'm going to say, as bad as they were, they were on such a higher level than the Jews who went astray in, let's say, this, the mid to late Second Temple period. And this is part of an overarching theme that we've been talking about the last few days. The Jews who are alive, even the wicked ones, at this phase in history, are alive during prophecy. When the knowledge of a Kaddish Baruch Hu is incandescent, your spirituality, it's something that's hard for us to fathom because we're not living in the same world. We're living in a world of Hester Pony, where, we, where it's hard for us to, we, we perceive a Kaddish Baruch Hu, as it were, through, through several layers of gauze. They lived in a, in a tangible reality of spirituality. And a few minutes ago, hold the thought for just a second, Jay, because I've always concerned with somebody's hands up that they're going to be so focused on their question that they missed the point. And I think this is an important point. You're, you're, they're alive in such a time that they're almost hyperactive with spirituality. And that's how I analyzed, how could they worship Hashem and simultaneously the Baal? Well, they were just on fire. It was electric. They couldn't control themselves. That was the problem. But they're on such a high level, they were certainly superior to the Hellenizers. We're about to, we're about to um, celebrate the overthrow of the Greeks on Hanukkah. But the, uh, the Hellenizers of the, of the mid to late Second Temple period were on a deplorable level, whereas, and, and I'll illustrate how, you know, if... Um, When, Elisha, when Eliyahu, and then later Elisha, rebukes the kings of the house of Ahav, they take it, they hear it, uh, they take it to heart, they try to make tshuva to their limited ability to do so. You know, if you think about Herod, Herod the builder, uh, if somebody went and criticized, and we're going to see this, anybody who criticized Herod, he simply slaughtered them. He was merciless. Right, so you have to always differentiate between the different phases in history. As bad as it was during the first temple period, it was really on a, on a totally different, higher level altogether. Um, ben Hadad, that king that I described over in Aram, he even characterizes um, the Jewish people. He says, Malchi Israel, they're kindly people. Because even the enemy saw the essential goodness of Klal Yisrael in these complicated times. What's that? Oh, because he was wicked. Ben Hadad was a, was was like most of the kings of the world. He didn't care about the kindness. He was he was impressed to the point that he realized, you know, we're not like that. Now let's go kill them. Yeah, but like every king, if you don't see, uh, for example, like if you what's the word I was going to say, if you look at another nation that way, right? Yeah. You try to make them allies. You don't try to destroy them on the spot. No. I don't, I'm not with you in your assumption. And that's certainly not the rule of the ancient world. The ancient world was just everybody for himself, and I want your land, period. They're brute force, animalistic, yeah. And they honestly think they had a chance with the source? Which, for which? For, for oh, for that statement? Yeah. Um, the first book of Malachim, chapter, um, chapter Chaf 20, verse 34. Uh, he's, uh, he's 
Ben Hadad comments on Malchus Yisrael. Yeah, it's a, I'm quoting a pasuk. I'm pretty sure though, like the kings of time heard like everything about the Jewish people. It's true, but they but they were so wicked that it didn't rub off on their own behavior. Yeah, no, no, I don't, I, no, I don't mean that. I mean like the wars they've been through. I'm not scared that they're gonna lose. Well, no, because now the Jews don't have this. They're not. They're not coasting on the same merits we once had. So we have to make it on our own. And and and, and the Jews we see are are in, are in a state of of of, of continuous decline. Decline. I'm gonna make one more point, then Jake, you're on. Um, in the, we read this in Divrayomim. It says when they um, at one point the northern kingdom is uh, successful in war and they're able to carry off. Uh, plunder and booty, and they, and they get 200,000 women and children that they bring to captivity, and then the Navi, I mean, and, you know, in war people tend to be barbaric, and the Navi, uh, Navi by the name of Oded, tells them, send them back, and when they send them back, not only do they comply, which was unheard of, totally irregular in the ancient world, they sent back these women and children who, in other people's hands, I mean, imagine ISIS, don't imagine ISIS, Right and 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 what 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 the barbarism of the world? They not only sent back these women and children; they sent them back fully clothed, fully clothed, having just fed them well. They were they were compassionate. They were caring. They even to the enemy. That was the nature of Klal Yisrael in these lofty days. Yeah. The fact that Hashem was so obvious on and that was the word and that prophecies, it just makes what they did worse. Right. Right. That's, thank you. You're reinforcing another insight. It's incredibly complicated to understand this because they're essentially so good and they know so well what the right thing to do is, it makes, from this perspective, their iniquity all the more startling and Hashem holds them accountable for it. 100%. And that's what makes... It's a nice segue if I can continue. It's a nice segue. I, mean, I, I don't describe, we're doing a rampage through all of Jewish history from the beginning to the end, right? So I can't possibly talk about everybody, but I am going to talk about one of my, one of the figures that intrigues me the most. I just can't figure him out, uh, but I'll introduce him to you and maybe you have an insight into him. His name is Chiel Habes Eli, who emerges in, the, and, in a few different places, and, he, and, and uh, Chazal have what to say about him. Anyway, he comes into this, this, this chapter two, and he's also hard to figure out, coming with knowledge, but then ignorance. So Chiel Habes Eli, comes in because of one shocking episode. I mentioned several weeks ago, Yeshua and the Jewish people destroy Yericho. And you remember Achan took some of the plunder and then they, they paid for it, they lost in the, in the valid Battle of Ha'ai, fine. Um, Yeshua afterwards says something about Yericho. Yericho is devastated, the walls sink, the Medrash says, beneath the, the, the surface of the earth. And what is Yeshua's very unusual curse? I emphasize this then, what was it, Barak? Right, it's it's more than that. Anybody who rebuilds Jericho not only will be cursed, generally, he will have ten children, each will die a horrific a horrific death. Chiela Beiseli, what do you know, happens to have ten sons. And he I mean enigmatically, we can't figure out what is he up to, although the Mafarshim can point us in the right direction. He sends them down, go rebuild Yericho. And there's debate, the Gemara debates, was it the original location of Yericho? Some say it was a different place, same name. Even so, his intention was clear. He's going to rebuild Yericho, his sons are. And then, one of them dies. You know, like the curse said, and they knew this. You know, as much as we're ignorant of most of history, because we're pathetically ignorant about Judaism today, they knew everything. 
They were walking, living, breathing history books. So the, the, the heritage was, was in, in all of their mouths, and certainly the curse of Yoshua was well known to everybody. Chiel certainly knew it. And the first dies, and he says, keep building, boys. And then the next one, the next one, until the last one died. And what was he thinking? Do you know this? You ever heard this story? Maybe, maybe he was doing it to more people than that one Okay, that's fine. In the context, that doesn't fit. Meaning, that's one of the disadvantages of our summary of history, is you don't see the whole story. But clearly, he's a wicked individual who knows better, and some has some kind of, I mean, he's not sadomasochistic, but he has some kind of skewed, odd, uh, off kind of a, of a motivation. What's that? Yeah, it does, and I don't remember. I don't remember the form of death. What is it? Do you remember? It's like a plague. It's a plague. I mean, it's clearly supernatural, too, Barack. Uh, I mean, at least my understanding of the story was that Ahab was going to make him, like, in charge. Yeah. So that was his motive, was that he was actually going to be uh, the head of the city. And he was hired by the king. Okay, that's one explanation. I'm going to give you, I, when I give you a pshat, it's a pshat. It doesn't mean it's deep pshat. That's always the risk of summarizing things. But I'm going to give you, I think, a very powerful, persuasive pshat. It comes by way of the, uh, the great Malbim, who uh, lived in a hundred different places before. He had a very difficult life. But he was a rav, a community rav, in the 19th century, all over Europe, in Germany, Hungary, and other places. The Malbim, with his uh, long and fantastic perush, he says this about Chiel. The sons die because Chiel sought eternity for himself. He wanted to rebuild a city and he wanted to name it after himself in the end. And by losing his children, all of them, he will be punished measure for measure by losing his link to eternity, by losing his legacy. That's how the Malbim says it. And then further, what is his motivation? Why would Chiel do this? This is a sign of the times. You know, we've talked about the introduction of full-fledged idolatry into this period. And yet they believed in the Kodesh Baruch Hu. Chiel, according to the Malbim, is making a point. Chiel wants to say, okay, Hashem created the world, but I refuse to believe if Ahab remains so prosperous in the world and he can, have, he can develop the worship of Baal and be un, not only unpunished, but remember it was under Ahab that the northern kingdom becomes a superpower in the world. He enjoys wealth and prosperity. How could that be? It must be, he concludes theologically, that there's no divine providence, what we call Hashkocha Pratis. And he sets out to prove that. And with something that becomes this patently clear and obvious to everybody, Yeshua's curse, that's something that people walk around with, they know about this, he says, I don't believe it. It can't be that the world could be like this, and somehow, hold the thought for a moment, let me just give you the whole concept and then you'll chew it over. Can't be the world is like this, right? Don't feel a Kaddish Baruch Hu's tangible, tangible Ashkach Pratis, and then somehow... Uh, so I'm going to send my sons down, and I don't care if they die. Because I'm, I'm, I'm arguing an argument that's much more profound, that's going to serve my people much better by showing I don't believe that there's a connection. Um, I think it's, as always, when you learn the Tanakh, you have to recognize the contemporary relevance. Do you realize that we're living in a world like this? We call this point of view deist, or alternatively, Aristotelian. Aristotle believed in a Kaddish Baruch Hu, but he believed in what's sometimes referred to as the clockmaker version of a Kaddish Baruch Hu who wound it up yeah, and then let it go. Deism, right? And, and let it go 
and the way they reconcile it is that Hashem is too lofty to be concerned with our petty concerns down here in this world. We're so finite and flawed. What does he need to worry about us for? Who, who am I, a little old me, for Hashem to worry about? And so he's got, and that's Chiel's perspective. And it's perspective that, that absolutely dominates much of history and it's not over either. And that is what a lot of people, the way they live their lives, they don't see a Kaddish Baruch Hu in the world and a basic tenet of our belief is we call it bitachon. A kaddish baruch Hu is involved. We say it like this. Um, Chazal express it like this. Hakol bide shemayim. Anybody going to finish this? It's such a famous statement. Hakol bide shemayim. Chutzmi yira shemayim. Everything's in Hashem's hands. He runs the world. What's if he runs the world? Then everything's predetermined. No, that means I'm useless. I'm pointless. No. What's in my hand? Yira shemayim, which includes our moral decision-making abilities. If I can make decisions, then, then, then that's, what's, that's what I can do. And that's where the Torah comes in. The Torah guides me in and te- teaches me how to lead a moral life. That's, that's, that's our worldview. And Chiel was, was, was coming to prove a point and to deny it even at the point of complete self-obliteration. And that was, the, that was the spirit of the times. And he knew better, and it's, it, it makes this image of these lofty Jews in the period of, of a prophecy even more stunning. Yeah, how um, can it be, how, how, how can it be Nebuah in the time when there's no Heshkoth? And I, I want to say the same thing that we've been saying before. It doesn't, make it doesn't make sense. And yet somehow people are brilliant and can re-explain everything to fit their worldview. And that's what Chiel's trying to do. Yeah, there's prophecy, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't hold that Kodesh Baruch Hu's involved. And he doesn't believe the prophets. Yeah, Daniel, you had something. Uh, two questions. One, after his nine son died, then you realized he was wrong, and two... Yeah, I mean, that's what's so stunning about it. And I'm just, you can go look further. There's much more to be said about Chiel. And two, I mean, he wants, it's his son. He wants his his, his but you know there's such a personality trait. Think, think of the mindset. Some people become such ideologues. They become so dedicated to a certain cause that even at the risk of complete self-abnegation, he's gone from the world. He will still, he's, it doesn't matter. He's going to make the point. And I think there's an important principle to be mentioned. Uh, uh, again, there's always about some balance. There's always a, the same balance of Yitzhak Tov and Yitzhak Tov. I mean, there was so much great prophecy. Everybody's going to agree prophecy was so incredible, but you have to have that, that real balance. You can't even picture it. They had prophecy, but just as they had prophecy, they had the same inclination. Right. And, 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 it's, going, and, and it's going to be as potent as the prophecy will be. The capacity. Yeah, it's great insight. The, the potent as the prophecy and the goodness and the, and the drive to do well in Hashem's world is you've got exactly the opposite drive to do evil and so the evil is going to be of the, an extreme nature and Chiel illustrates the point. The, the, if you go and you learn Malachim inside, you see an immense contrast. Because now picture Chiel. The next figure that we start to meet in greater detail is Eliyahu Navi. And this next story that's told is he goes north. And you remember there's been a famine uh, for three years, a drought for three years. There's no water. And an older woman, Anishami Tsarfat, and her son are about to die of thirst. And they're preparing themselves to die of thirst. They still don't stop at doing the Jewish thing of helping of chesed. They take in Eliyahu Navi and they do chesed for him. And he repays the favor. He, he's, he's, he does, he's a miracle worker. You remember the story where he says, she says, all I have left is a little flask of oil. And so he said, okay, why don't you start pouring the oil? 
and um, she starts pouring the oil, and the oil doesn't stop. To the point that all of her neighbors come running with buckets and bowls and everything, and she becomes a wealthy woman. And she saves her life and her son's life, all because of the nace. I'm just going to make the comment here. Um, Chiel denies, listen to the irony and the, contra- the, con- the contradiction here. Chiel denies Ashkocha Pratis, divine providence, and loses his Chaye Olam. Right, the opposite of his name. Chiel, Hashem gives life, he loses his and all future life. Eliyahu, in contrast, sees Ashkocha Pratis. And what happens in the story? Um, the, the, the boy actually dies. And it's in history the first time, the first instance where we actually see Tchia Samesim. Eliyahu seemingly performs it. Obviously, Hashem performs all miracles. The boy comes back to life. The boy is identified as Chaz- by Chazal as Yonah Hanavi. No, it's a parallel story. All the, um, we're going to see by Elisha ahead of me, all the stories, Elisha doubles the, na- the Nisim of Eliyahu. Everything that Eliyahu does, Elisha does twice. And Elisha revives a, a little a boy, and that boy grows up, Chazal tells us, to be Habakkuk. Another figure. Another, two, two of the Treyasar. Right, so if he did twice as much as Eliyahu, you're ahead of me now. I'm not in Elisha right now. Let's do one thing at a time. What? Eliyahu? Yeah. You're still ahead of me. He hasn't, he hasn't ever risen to heaven yet. One thing at a time. That woman who died on first and she did chesed. Someone's like when Abraham expelled it. Oh, what a nice connection. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Our ju- what, what, and, and the meta, meta idea here is that I may be dying, but right now there's a job to be done. I got to do chesed. I got to do mitzvahs. That's the way we look at life. It, it, the whole notion of euthanasia complicated issue. No, it's not so clear-cut, but basically the approach in, in, in Torah sources is that we live even if the quality of life is not everything that it could be. Uh, and the perspective is, what we say is, you know, if I, even a person is a, who's a vegetable, maybe he, he could wake up and say, Kriyat you know, just for that one precious mitzvah, life is worth it. Um, yeah, less common than I'm going to go on. Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess it's more of a, there's a midrash, which I think is a perfect connection to this. I yeah. You can get to it. But Go ahead. It's uh, Eliyahu, and when the prayer actually started, where he actually goes to heal's uh, funeral. What do you notice? Heal's? Uh, his, his son's uh, funeral, the first one. Okay. And Ahab was there. That's, that's when he actually makes the What first. point do you want to make from that? Oh, I mean, I, I think that's the perfect connection, because he starts the drought, uh, he he uh, takes uh, he causes the drought. He is. Hashem allows Eli- Eliyahu to determine the drought, and then and then he holds and then he holds Eliyahu at fault for being too harsh with the Jews. Right. Um, they um, Eliyahu had warned Ahav that as long as his evil persists, there's going to be neither rain nor what's called Tal Shel Bracha. Uh, the modern Chinese distinguishes there's there's ordinary dew. And then there's dew that brings a blessing. Right, like tal is in tal, tal, like that kind of tal, but they're different kinds of dew. You're not going to have any of the good stuff. And the, 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 the liquid that comes is not going to help you at all. Um, and the famine is one of unprecedented ferocity. He himself hides in Nachukerit. He eats foods that ravens bring. Uh, in last week's Parsha, in Parsha's Nayach, there's a reference, there's a Pesach that we learned that the raven actually was kept alive in order to have this redeeming uh, future 
Rashi mentions this, this future event where he winds up, the raven winds up sustaining Eliyahu Navi during this period by bringing him food. Um, the water then, that's when that the water dries up, the, the, the miracle with Yonah and Yonah's mother takes place. Um, I mentioned Ovadia. Ovadia um, was himself a convert, an unusual phenomenon. We don't find Navim who are converts. He himself was a convert from Edom, from Asaph. Fitting then that he would be the one to criticize Esau and to be among really the authoritative Navi in, in predicting what the future of Esau is going to be. Um, his great event was he hides a hundred prophets after Ezebel had massacred so many of the other prophets. So he hides a hundred at, at the risk of his own life and takes care of them. Um, and it's Ovadia himself who, at the end of the three years, meets his Rebbe Eliyahu on the road, and he greets him, and then he informs his master, he goes back to Ahab, and he says, he has to tell him that Eliyahu is coming, and the two arch enemies now meet up, and it's at this point, I quoted this scene before, but it's worth quoting again, Ahab sees Eliyahu, and he says, Aha! Yisrael, is that you, my old troublemaking non-friend? And Reverend Eliyahu does not pause. Lo, it wasn't me. It was you in your father's house. And um, that's when, and I just told this story last week on the bus on the way up to, as it were, walk in the footsteps of Eliyahu, if indeed we did that on, on the Mount Carmel where we hiked. Um, Eliyahu says, gather uh, all of your prophets to the Baal, we're going to meet on the Mount Carmel, and we're going to offer korbanos to demonstrate who is the true master of the universe. The true master of the universe will send a heavenly fire down to consume the korban of the one that he chooses. Um, they're there. The, the nation is assembled. The prophets of the Baal have the first go at this. They're confident. They start doing their acts of worship. They start um, jumping up and down, as is their practice. They start shouting out to their gods. Uh, they start cutting themselves with knives. They do this all morning. Nothing happens. No fire from heaven, no rain from the sky. Uh, Eliyahu starts urging them. He says, hey, shout louder. He's, mock he's mocking them. It's a very funny scene. He says, um, I don't know if you guys are cutting yourselves quite deeply enough. Okay! So they start cutting themselves deeper. Nothing works, surely obviously. That, surely that shows true devotion. Even though... <laughs> well, even, that's true. Even for, even though so you're somebody who sees the good even in the, in the pits of evil. Fine, good, it's true. It does show their devotion. Halavai, we will be as devoted to what we believe in. Good. Um, he says, Eliyahu says, you know, it might be that the God, the ball is still asleep. Maybe you need to wake them up. And again, the whole thing, they can't, they, obviously, they, they fail, they're, they're, they're pagan. The next evening, Eliyahu's turn comes. He offers a korban. Is there anything problematic in that? Yeah, because yeah. Bamos. Uh-oh, Bamos. This is the one instance in all of history that Bamos, Chutechuts, are permitted in a what's called a Horas Sha'ah. It was a special emergency measure. Eliyahu got permission from Hashem. Yeah, he couldn't do this on his own. He said he's a Navi. This kind of special proviso, he can't just do this. So he does it with Hashem's, with Hashem's blessing. Uh, and, and it's the one time that we see people offering outside of the base of Mikdash in a, in a mutter fashion. Um, he takes 12 stones, symbolizing the 12 prophets. 
he pours water on the pieces of the burnt offering, the ola, and then it happens. A fire falls, it consumes the entire offering, the entire korban ola, but it doesn't stop there. It then consumes the entire pile of wood, and then the people see miracles upon miracles. Um, stones start to break into flame, something that does not happen in this world. The dust starts to catch fire, and the water in the trench is consumed by fire. And the people shout out in a mighty voice, and there was also the Medrash, one Medrash, one of my favorite Medrashim, if you're sticking to Medrashim, the, the, um, the Nevi Hebal knew that their whole thing was a hoax. So they intended, how, how come they were so confident they were to come true? Because they actually planted a special, they had a special ploy. They planted their man underneath the altar to set it on fire. Who was their man under the altar all ready to go with his matchbox and ready to, to light it on fire to make it look like the, the Baal was actually make, bringing the fire? Why? Who else? Chiel Habet Eli. And it was Chiyah Habet Eli now who's consumed in a fire in Hashem's rage as Hashem, as Hashem makes his miracles. And the people call out in recognition of all the miracles, Hashem Hu Helokim, like we do at the very end of Yom Kippur. Hashem Hu Helokim, um, the entire nation, including Achav. Achav is part of the chorus. He's screaming out that Hashem is, is the God. They grab all of the prophets of the Baal in a very grisly scene. They slit their throats. And, yeah, this and immediately, the famine ends. Now picture this. Hold the thought. I'm, I'm painting a scene here. Picture the scene. You're, you've just witnessed, among, you've witnessed now among the most spectacular of, a series of events in all of history, tangible Ashkocha Pratis in the world. You can't deny it. You talked about the Naveen. Here they just saw this grand display. The famine ends, and the next day they go back to worshiping the bomb. Um, there's another. There's, there's so much insight here, but I'm going to give you one insight. Miracles in history usually are not conducive to a person's amuna, because in human nature, what we do, what happens to us, is we experience the miracles, we see the light, we're brought back to Kodesh Baruch Hu, and the next day, we go right back to the old ways. We need something more enduring, more um, personal, and with more uh, hard work rolling up our sleeves in order to really affect human change. The fireworks, the grandeur of the spectacle at Mount Carmel is not enough. Yeah, Jake. The Sada and Yohanan would give The whole reason why the idolatry started was because of the bombs. Yes. So the fact that <coughs> no, 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 I'm not with you. Who said the fact that ideology started because of the bombs? It did, it kind of did though. It's certainly a cause, but no, idolatry is much more complex and involved. Here, arguably, it's because they never, they never exiled the, the, the pagan influence in their midst. And the fact that Ahab would deign to marry a Phoenician princess and, and, and accept her imported gods, that was really the more immediate cause here. The fact that he did bomb us in Certainly a part of it. Oh, that would do that as the antidotes? You want to say that's a problem? That's a problem because they think they're I can't accept, I, I can't hear that as a, as a reasonable shot because Hashem set him up doing that. Hashem would know if that's a counterproductive. Um, <clears throat> Izevil puts out a warrant, a death uh, sentence on Eliyahu's neck. 
she swears to do this not so much out of hatred for Eliyahu, but because she fears an insurrection. She, she, she's there, she watches everybody screaming Hashem Elohim, and she's petrified. And so she, she feels out of self-protection. She has to, she has to, she has to um, send out a warrant for Eliyahu's life. Um, but uh, she gives him a chance to flee, to her credit. She doesn't actually kill him. She recognizes he's what's called an Ish Elohim, a man of God, and he flees. And now, I mean, picture Eliyahu, he's a tragic figure. He's somebody who's extremely harsh on the Jewish people. That's why, that's why he, 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 can, he configures this whole idea of a famine and, and the many, many decrees. And that's, we see that's the running theme of his life that continues till today, um, that he didn't give the Jewish people enough credit. And as it were, Kaddish Baruch who shows him that his tikkun, what he needs to fix in this world, is to give the Jewish people more credit. He runs away now, a chastised, ostracized, alienated, lonely figure. He runs down initially to Beersheba, Interestingly there, he davens for death. And you have to understand what that, what's that about. Not that he's suicidal. He's not going to commit suicide. But he says, I don't feel my purpose in this world has any further, uh, has any further quality. I, take my life, he says. Hashem. Elohim. an interesting passage. I know, ironically. So Hashem, in response, says, not only are you not going to die now, <laughs> I've got a mission for you, Eliyahu. And he, and, he, and he more than adequately fills it. As we're going to meet Eliyahu, he's going to be the one figure that winds his way through history. Learning with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and, and, and Rabbi Lazar in the cave, learning with the Arizal on the island off the Nile, and, 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 and recurring through history, and including and, 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 and arguably most prominently um, heralding in the Messianic era in the very end of days. Now, meanwhile... Meanwhile, um, he walks for 40 days and nights, and he reaches a place called Chorev, which is another word for Chorev, Mount Sinai. And he gets to Mount Sinai, and I'm, I'm ending today with arguably one of the most famous scenes in all of history. And at Mount Sinai, uh, Hashem brings about a series of natural wonders never seen since the days of Matan Taira itself. And they replicate Matan Taira. And Eliyahu is the lone audience to witness all of the spectacle. There's a massive wind, not like any wind that we know. And, and, and Hashem, Eliyahu seeks Hashem in the wind and he doesn't find him. And then there's an earthquake. And it's one of the great earthquakes of all history. And again, he seeks Hashem and he doesn't find him. It's followed by an immense fire. And the same problem, he seeks Hashem and he doesn't follow, find him. And then Eliyahu experiences something, and I have to use the Hebrew because the Hebrew is very, very famous. Three words. He encounters what the Pasuk tells us is a kol dmama daka, a still small voice, and it's in the still small voice that Eliyahu finally encounters a Kodesh Baruch. And it's this ripe image that is subject to such so much darshaning. I'm going to do it inadequately, but I'm going to leave it with this image. You know, the still small voice. Sometimes it's all the fireworks. That's what draws people's interest. Sometimes people are all about charisma and glamour and the, and, and, and the flamboyancy of, uh, of doing. But sometimes in life, where you find MS is in the quiet act of chesed that nobody even witnesses. Or your own internal struggle. You have a big Yetzirah to do something. And you quietly decide, I'm not going to do this. It's that still small voice that sometimes carries within it the most 
powerful spiritual revelation for an individual, and that's exactly where Eliyahu encounters Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Hakadosh Baruch Hu there at, at Mount Sinai rebukes Eliyahu, says, "Can't you see? There's virtue in Klal Yisrael with all of their faults." And Eliyahu, even confronted with that, the pasuk responds. He says, "He says, no, I don't see it. Don't you see the iniquities of the Jewish people?" And his fate is sealed more or less at this moment where it's clear he needs to learn a lesson that with all of our iniquities and our problems, and there are many, they're legion, as we keep saying, but we have at our core a, a, a greatness to us, Klal Yisrael, and that's something that Eliyahu himself is going to learn throughout all of history. At the end of the event, he learns that there's going to be a man that's going to rise up named Yehu, who's going to be the new king leading a new dynasty. He also learns that he's going to have a new protege, the protege is named Elisha. He is a, uh, a farmer, a Horish, and um, he's going to be, he's going to signify the future uh, into the next generation of Nebu. And if you look on your, um, your, uh, your tradition, the sheet that, that cites all of the, the next one, Jay, um, that one, the, the, uh, the uh, Messiah list, you can see that Elisha is the next in line for the Messiah. Okay, so I'll have to get that to you. Okay, have a fantastic Shabbos. Thank <laughs> you.